It's time to ignite your soul and unlock your full potential. Join us on Beneath the Helmet, the podcast exploring firefighters' health and wellness. Hosted by retired fire chief Arjuna George, our podcast is the perfect place to start your journey towards becoming the best version of yourself. So come on, let's join the conversation and find out what sets your soul on fire. All right, welcome back, everyone. It's December 2023. We're approaching season two of Beneath the Helmet. And I just want to have a shout out to everyone who's listened to the podcast, who's liked and subscribed, commented and shared the posts. Uh, because the more posts and more sharing that happens through the BTH community, the bigger our audience will grow. And the messages that we all hear every time will get into the ears of more people around the world. So please, if I could ask anything for a holiday present would be to share, like, comment, and make sure that your friends, your colleagues, those who might be suffering, become part of the BTH community. So today I get a chance to sit down with somebody that um, I don't know too much about the history of being a dispatcher. Uh, honestly, I, I've known dispatchers. I've worked with dispatchers who are just incredible. They are kind of the first first responders, and I truly feel that it's it's a great time to highlight what that career looks like and the impact that it has. So today I get a conversation with Deborah Green, who's a retired police dispatcher, and she's going to share her struggles through several, but there was one in particular, but several uh, officer-related shootings. And she describes the day that her officer that was on duty that day that she was dispatching, were shot and killed in the line of duty. So Deborah's going to share her story, share a little bit of inside about what it is like to be a dispatcher, and uh, some of the things that she's used through her years um, to help her recovery from her post-traumatic stress as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode, a little insight to what dispatching is all about, and the personal journey of persevering through an officer-related shooting. Happy New Year to everyone. Until next time. Stay well. All right. Welcome back to Beneath the Helmet. Super excited to have Deborah Green with us today. She's going to fill us in on where she comes from and uh, what brought her to where she is today. So welcome to the show, Deborah. Share with our listeners uh, a little bit about who. Oh oh my gosh, a little bit. 28 years of (laughs) a little bit. Oh my gosh. So I'm from Northern California in the Sacramento County area. Um, I joined the California Army National Guard back in 1986 as a communications technician, radio phone operator, repair person. Um, then along along the way, I became a military police officer. Um, I missed going to Desert Storm, but I did go to the L.A. riots, um, which was quite interesting. In amongst that's itself, you don't yeah. you don't usually get deployed in your own country. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's incredible. That was that was quite quite interesting, just to huh. see. I don't know if you would call it hostility because some people weren't hostile, but just the animosity towards law enforcement at the t- at that time in that mm-hmm. area was was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I recall that. What do you remember? What year roughly that was? Nineteen ninety two. 92. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. About uh, a- April, May, June, kind of. I was there for, I think it was six weeks. Huh. We were down there. Huh. Um, 
So just kind of containing the riot, you know, containing areas and getting them back to not normal, but at least peaceful, more peaceful than it was when we walked in there. So it was quite interesting. But at the time, I was also attending the academy for dispatchers for Sacramento Police Department. So Mm. I didn't get to finish the academy with everybody else. So when I came back, I I went and finished up what I had missed, and then jumped it, jumped right in. I guess you would say. <laughs> yeah, I I honestly don't know a lot of dispatchers uh, through my fire world. I probably knew maybe less than twenty twenty five dispatchers. But what is the process for going to school for that? Um, the for the dispatch academy, um, you're basically um going through the. Um, at the time, it was a two-week um, post, post, which is police officer standard training through California. So dispatchers had their own post academy uh, to get certified to be a dispatcher. And then the academy for Sacramento Police Department. So you're learning all the codes and um, learning how to take those calls before they actually send you into the center to to do the calls which which is really nice you know it gives gives you a rather than throwing you to the wolves exactly yeah that could be very stressful (laughs) yeah so and a lot of agencies have those um and in california i don't know if it's nationwide but in california for for fire dispatchers um they have what's called emd or emergency medical dispatch Mm. which they have, they used to have cards back in the day that you would, you know, flip through and ask specific questions. Um, and that was just for uh, liability purposes. Right. Um, but I think it's all computerized now. Mm. And so you would go to school for that too. So you went through becoming a, well, you did several, several positions. You went from <laughs> uh, police to military police, a dispatch. Um, and now you're retired. So what uh, what transpired between then and retirement? Oh, my gosh. So um, I spent 11 months with Sacramento Police Department, and they released me on probation because I was technically not fast enough for them to keep mm-hmm. up with the, the traffic and the radio traffic. Um, so I was released on probation. I immediately went to go look for other jobs because I had an academy under my belt. So that was, and I had also been post-certified. So people will take you with that certification over somebody just off the street, which is good. So I got hired with El Dorado County Sheriff's Office and kind of got thrown to the wolves. I guess you would say it was a kind of night and day compared to Sacramento. Um, When I went to El Dorado, they didn't have a dispatch manual. There wasn't any policies and procedures established. I got handed a binder with memos and and other things in it and said here this is you need to learn all this there's the xerox machine go make yourself a copy right <laughs> so that was my my first night was doing that and then learning the codes because their codes were different you know from agency to agency and then learning their cad system their mm-hmm. cat luckily with cad system was uh very similar okay so it it wasn't too bad to to switch over mm-hmm. but you know just years and years and years of critical incidents um you know just the 
the normal law enforcement calls you would take, I guess. I don't know what, what would be considered normal, but you know, the, mm -hmm. the varied soup to net, lots of shooting calls throughout my career where we shot the bad guys up until 2007. And then we had a, a three officers that were shot at a mm. call, which was quite interesting. Um, getting woken up from that because I work graveyards and it happened during the day. And so everybody that was watching the news that day was calling me, finding out, trying to find out what happened. It's like, guys, I'm sleeping. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, going to survivor. Yeah. All three of them survived, which Good. was Good. wonderful. Um, but you know, I mean, it takes a toll on, takes a toll on you. Um, one of them continued with the department. One of them went to the DA's office. Uh, the other, she kind of struggled for a while. Um, uh, I'm not sure if she was fired or quit from the department, um, but she eventually committed suicide. So that was hmm. rather sad. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, just kind of dealing with that and other shootings as they, they came along. And then finally in 2019, well, we were working and I had an officer involved shooting where my deputy was shot and killed. Oh, jeez. Oh, and you were I working. Was, while I was working that, that channel, yeah. Wow. And that was kind of the end, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess you would say, you know, because when you're adding all these traumas and layering them, you know, you finally get to the point where you can't do it anymore. So. Absolutely. I lasted about a year, and then my psychiatrist signed me off and said, you're not working anymore. Right. And then I finally retired in June of 2021. Hmm. What kind of support did you get personally when you were in that year time span? Um, from the department, uh, they tried to do as much as they could. You know, they were very supportive, um, with the exception of the supervisor that I had who I don't know if she didn't understand or just didn't want to understand or if I was a threat to her. I don't know. But I I was micromanaged to a point where I was um, doubting what I was doing. And thus creating anxiety and depression and just taking all of that on on a traumatized person anyway. And it it just it didn't work out. And then we had COVID along with it. So in twenty you know, October twenty nineteen, you're rolling, you're trying to get get help and get out and get help, and then you're locked down in a room for you know, when you're off duty, you're at home. You right. can't go out, you can't do much of anything. So, you know, that takes a toll on you also. When there's so a police involved shooting as a dispatcher, do you, are you involved in the post-incident review or anything like that? Or how does that play out? Like, are you involved um, in the investigation after the fact? I was investigated. Mm. Um, um, I'm not, I wasn't, uh, because they have to pull the tapes and they have to make sure that what I did was according to procedure. Right. So that's the first thing they did. Um, when the, um, so the department doesn't investigate itself um, in right. that type of situation. You have um, other agencies that come in, at least for our department. So we had uh, South Lake Tahoe Police Department, Placerville Police, 
uh, the district attorney's office, and I believe there was a, one other agency that came over and sent people to do investigations. So what they did was, first off, there was a team that pulled all the tapes and listened to everything and made sure it was according to policy. So I was cleared immediately within two or three days, right. which was nice. As far as any of the other involvement, I wasn't I wasn't involved at all. And right. luckily, I didn't have to do any testifying in court either. They just used the tapes. Right. Nice. Do you feel comfortable enough to kind of paint a little bit of a picture of how that day transpired or? Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting day. So, um, and like I said, I work graveyards. So, um, you know, my, my shift started at 7 PM. The deputy that was shot and killed, Brian Ishmael, he, his shift started a little later that night because of just how the, the shifts work. Um, so he started and I had caught him in the, uh, the hallway before he went out and, you know, had talked to him and, you know, joked around with him uh, while I was on my break walking around the building. Um, then he goes out. I dispatched him to the call along with two cover units at about, I think it was about 1245, one o'clock in the morning. Um, as soon as I dispatched them, the sergeant had called me and said, make sure there's three units going and 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 whatnot, because it was um, a call about a marijuana grow and possibly prowlers in the marijuana grow. It being October, it's what we call harvest season around here. So um, they weren't sure if somebody was in there trying to steal the guy's plants or or what was going on, because at the time um, you could have up to 12 plants personal growing in your yard. Uh, we didn't know how big the grow was. Uh, it was rather large when we finally found <laughs> out about it. So I sent them out. I went on a break and um, during my breaks, I would walk around the building out in the parking lot, you know, just to get some exercise and, and air. And on my way back, I got a text message from the lead saying, we need you back in here. I walked in and my partner goes, uh, they have shots fired. And so I just sat down threw my headset on and took over from that. Um, I could hear uh, through a couple of transmissions, I could hear shots being fired. Um, we lost communication with uh, Brian Ishmael and we were asking him if he could hear us to click his mic because he might've been in a tactical position and, and couldn't make any noise. Uh, we got nothing. Um, then I finally learned that they had were able to get him out and we had sent an ambulance down during all of this because we had the world going at that time once the shots are fired. Um, and I had heard that they had got him out and got him on an ambulance and he was on his way to the hospital. So at that time you're thinking, okay, he's with professionals. He's with the medics, he's on his way to the hospital. He's going to be fine. I, you know, you set that aside in your little box and you, you're going to worry about that later. Right. And so we just kept going and trying to get the suspects in this. Uh, I think we finally caught the second suspect about four 30 in the morning. Um, in between then, um, deputy Ishmael had, had passed. The way we found out was not the nicest way to find out. So we had learned that somebody at the hospital 
had posted on Facebook that he had died. One of the admin people who was at the hospital found out about that. And instead of going through procedure to, like they would have sent somebody to the office to tell us, he called up because he didn't want us reading Facebook and right. and finding out that way. So then my lead comes over and tells me. And so I'm going two hours, about two hours worth of crying while I'm dispatching, but not letting the guys out on the field know what was going on because they, they had a mission to do out there. And my job was to keep as calm as possible to get them to the end goal and then worry about, you know, everything else later. Well, that must so, have been extremely challenging to keep it, it all was, together. It, well, I, I wasn't actually. The chaplain was behind me and she's going, I don't know how you're doing it because I was literally just, I, I was sobbing. But when they had a transmission, I would, you know, pull it together for those two seconds to talk to them and then, you know, continue. But, well, you know, I recorded everything like I was supposed to. I got things done like I was supposed to. Um you know, everything, everything that they heard out there in the field was what they should have heard. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm at the office just mm-hmm. falling apart. Wow. I'm sorry for your loss there. That must have been a challenging day. It was, it was the worst day of my life. Hmm. It really was. Hmm. So in the fire world, uh, something like that occurs. Usually that station would be browned out or, or blacked out and taken off. Right. The firefighters would be able to go and have some peer discussions or diffusing or debriefing. But it sounds like you had to remain active for the remainder of your shift. Is that has that changed or um, is that still the well, situation? Well, no, we at four thirty my relief was standing behind me. Oh and she relieved you. me as soon as but I was not getting off that I refused to get off the radio until they caught the second suspect. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um which was my choice. But after that, I went down, I went down and sat in the stairwell for about a half an hour and just Mm -hmm. cried my little heart out. Um, Mm -hmm. but we did have an initial critical stress. I don't know if it it wasn't a whole debrief, but it was just, you know, getting everybody into one room and saying, okay, this is what's going to happen. Um, you know, we're going to send you home. We're going to do this. It was the day after that we came back and did a whole stress debrief with our shift. And what they did was, um, in, in years past, they had put all of us together. So the patrol guys dispatch any SWAT people, uh, sergeants, you know, everybody was all in the same room doing the debrief. Um, this time it was the patrol units dispatch SWAT. They each had their own smaller Mm. debrief which was more targeted for that specific group, which was nice. Like I said before, I honestly don't know a lot of dispatchers. I've been in the fire service for 24 years and I had one dispatcher my whole career, not one dispatcher, one dispatch center. So, you know, 20, 30 people I've probably met over time and don't have any close friends who were just strictly in dispatch. I'd love to hear kind of what a standard day would look like for you and and how that's different than being on the front lines. Maybe um, from a maybe from a lens of your own self-care, mental health, of being <laughs> so far away from the action, but still uh, in the action. 
it's it's very different and i i know many people probably disagree with my setting on this but it's kind of like watching a i don't know like a video game in your head so you've got a CAD screen, you have calls for service, you have units. So you're putting those units on the calls for service and and you have to imagine what's going on in your mind because you're not actually visually seeing any of this. So, you know, um, so on a day I'd come in, put my stuff away, grab my coffee, go get uh, briefed by the person I was relieving. We weren't assigned if we were working radio or phones when we got in. It was just we kind of agreed upon ourselves who was doing what for the week. Um, but as long as we worked the busy radio at least one day during our work week. What's a busy radio like? How many calls would you? Oh, my gosh. 24? Were you working <laughs> so, 24s or? or um, we worked 12s. 12s. Yeah, okay. So you come in the busy radio depending on what shift. So graveyard, when I would come in, granted it's, you know, 7 PM. So it's a busier time of day. Right. So we would have maybe 12 patrol units for half the County. So our busy radio was from, um, what we called West Slope radio. And then we had Tahoe, um, because our County went from Sacramento County all the way to the Nevada border. And um, Tahoe had its own radio channel, so they only had three deputies a shift mm-hmm. up there, which was nice. Um, so I'd I'd be working with twelve deputies, have all sorts of other units on canines. Um, maybe you'd have a few detectives. You had animal control on your on your board. Um, forest service every once in a while. Uh, state parks every once in a while. Because we did everything, you know, we went from r- urban to rural, extreme right. rural, <laughs> you know, national forest kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of different units. So I'd maybe have 20, 25 units on when I sat down mm-hmm. um, and, and maybe 10 calls for service pending, um, five or six calls going on, depending on the priority and how many units you needed on each call. You know, and just kind of go from there. Plus, you know, if you if you're working the busy radio, you were answering phone calls if everybody else was on a phone call. So I could be doing traffic stops and and priority calls and have to answer a phone call at the same time. Yeah. So wow. <laughs> what's was, the number one skill you need as a dispatcher? Multitasking would be a good one. You know, <laughs> knowing how to um um yes. hear out of hear two things out of two different ears. So yeah, that was quite the uh, okay. the skill. Yeah, so we can bar- I- we can barely hear each other talking in uh, a fire, <laughs> let alone uh, two different people talking in my ear. Well, yeah. So you've got the radio in one ear and the phone in the other ear, and then you're also listening to the room around you because you know you never know what's going on with you know mm-hmm. with your partners answering answering calls and stuff. Yeah, I I can remember um, when I was doing phones one night and the the lady says he's got a gun so you you kind of go and where's that gun Mm. (laughs) you know you kind of like do the room so everybody knows whoops we got one coming in right (laughs) so that must be pretty i don't know stressful kind of brewing some anxiety about knowing that there's a very challenging situation going on 
and you are very intimate with the caller or the person calling in or your police officers or whatever that looks like, but you are not there. You're painting that picture. Do you tend to go to the dark places right away or um, like how, is that, cause it just seems like a real struggle to be you, like, you I know develop. for the fire service, when we get rid of a patient, take them to the hospital, we never know their outcome. And for right. us, that kind of weighs a bit on us. It's like, how did they turn out? Did they, did we, the work we did, did it help them? Right. Um, I imagine it's very similar to dispatcher it's, where you kind of It's very up similar. And, you don't yeah. know the outcome of a lot of things. Um, but um, because we were technically a smaller department, even though we had all these cops out there, um, our dispatch center was close to where the patrol guys were. So they'd come up and visit a lot so we could, and, you know, especially if we had a critical call, a lot of them would come up and tell us what, what went on, right. which was nice. So, you know, we knew what some of, some of it, but, you know, there's a lot that you just kind of like, okay, you dispatch it, you clear the call. Okay. Let's go on to the next hmm. and, you know, hope for yeah. the best. When you said you were answering phones, is that like 911 kind of calls coming oh, in? Oh yeah. Or so we that... had... So you're running 911 as well. So, yeah, we had 911, emergency lines, non-emergency lines, business lines. So there was a lot of of phones. So we had, you know, 28, 30 plus lines. (laughs) (laughs) And there'd only be four of us working the shift. So, yeah, we'd get crazy some nights. Yeah. Well, kudos kudos (laughs) to you and all the dispatchers out there in the world for sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing job and I loved what I did. It was awesome. That's good. So as a dispatcher, there's obviously some major stressy experience. There's trauma that you're experiencing vicariously through the telephone line. Uh, you're talking to somebody 911 and you know, their, their child's choking or their mother's in the upstairs apartment, the house is on fire. All these different things can happen. So what does Deborah do for her own mental health care? And maybe what could you have done better as a dispatcher, maybe back in the day? Um, I had a lot of hobbies. Hmm. So I knit, I sew, I now paint, which is kind of fun. I learned many, many years ago that after a critical incident, going out and running or taking a walk, kind of helped reduce all of that adrenaline um that you had going on there and didn't and made the the uh come down a lot easier i don't know how cuz when you've got that adrenaline you're just up and you're tense and you're there and if you don't do anything to kind of bring yourself down and get rid of that adrenaline you have like an adrenaline dump and it just kind of like you feel like you're hung over. So going out and exercising after, after an incident like that, uh, helped me quite a bit. I could tell the difference between, um, my first officer involved shooting and my second officer involved shooting, um, where I started walking and exercising in between the two of them. And the second one I dealt with a lot better than I did the first one. And the second one was the last one you did? No, this oh, was, yeah. oh my gosh. <laughs> you had a few. And I've had, I've had many. <laughs> oh, wow. My first one, um, I didn't know if the deputy 
had gotten injured or not until the next day. So I was upset and crying and, you know, I just didn't know what was going on. There was no, and this was back in the 90s. There wasn't peer support. There wasn't critical incident stress debriefings. There wasn't mental health care. You know, it was just suck it up and come back tomorrow. For sure. Nowadays, you know, you have that, the peer support and all of that to help you through it. So having an outlet, like a hobby or something, always helps. Exercise is very important. And teen, I started in, in therapy um, because of uh, I had open heart surgery to replace a, a faulty valve in my heart. And when you're put on bypass, um, some people develop what's called post-perfusion syndrome, which uh, kind of affects your brain and amplifies a lot of issues you might have had that didn't re you didn't realize you had. So my depression and my anxiety just went out of control. So I went into therapy then. Um, so having therapy and being in therapy and having those tools when I had my my final incident really helped. I don't I don't know what I would have done had I not had those tools already. I think yeah. I would be a lot worse. For sure. Yeah, it's good you had them pre kind of already established and kind of utilizing them, right? And building right. a relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah. The first thing I did when I got home uh, that next morning was call and make an emergency therapy appointment. Mm -hmm. And okay. then a friend of mine was a peer support person. And so after my therapy appointment, I went, I drove about a mile to where she, <laughs> where I went to therapy at. She worked at another dispatch center over there and so I called her up and said hey can we talk and I had another you know couple hours of therapy there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that was nice you know I had a good dose of it yeah the power of peer support is uh pretty potent in our own self-care uh it's pretty incredible how we can reflect and talk openly to another peer uh, even if it's another could be a firefighter or a paramedic that you're talking to but even they just know the world that we live in right right it's so much nicer because okay. as much as my, my family understands and my husband understands because they lived with me for, you know, almost 30 years doing this job, it wasn't the same as just having somebody that was another dispatcher that could, could kind of help and direct and, you know, it, it was, sure. if. A big help, a big help. So you started therapy in 2015. Is this something you still continue to do and peer yes. support? And yeah, um, peer, not so much peer support. Um, when I finally announced my retirement, I kind of became a persona non grata. I don't know if that's it. it just the, the department just kind of cut all ties with me right. when I finally announced it. And when you're retiring because of PTSD. That's not the kind of thing that your department should be doing. Right. <laughs> so how was your last so, day? Was it just like a, a farewell or was it like a retirement party? There was no party. Nobody. It was like you just I, were there I, and then gone. Yeah, I walked in, um, had my grandson with me because I had been watching him while I was off. And so I took him up there with me, kind of my emotional support kid. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, walked in and turned in my ID and turned in my key card and, you know, that was pretty much it. I kind of, I was in the building, so I, you know, they allowed me to walk around still and say goodbye to people, but yeah, it was, yeah. there was no, hmm. no fanfare, no. It wasn't nothing. the, it wasn't the vision you had for your retirement. No, it was not. I had planned to retire in 2024 hmm. and yeah, so I fell short a bit. <laughs> for our listeners right now, there's probably lots, uh, yeah, lots that are considering retirement in the next one or two years. How was the transition for you? And any tips you can share with the listeners oh my on gosh. the transition? Well, I kind of got... So when the psychiatrist signed me out, I was still an employee. So I was still, you know, doing 12-hour shifts and things like that. And then she said, nope, no more. So I didn't know how long I would be out how long she would allow me to be out. So what I did was for my own self-preservation, I put myself on a schedule mm. and I was up at, at the time, I was up at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, I made sure to go and take a walk outside every day um, just to get out in the sunshine. You know, you're sitting inside because of COVID still. And so it was like, mm, <laughs> I need to be out. So, so that's what I did. And I, you know, just threw my podcasts on. Um, I have all sorts of different subjects that I listen to and tried to <laughs> beneath the helmet now. <laughs> but I have all sorts of like, yeah, just soup to nuts kind of fun stuff. Um, but I stayed away from the self-help stuff. I just wanted to get my brain away from what I needed, you know, away from work, away from law enforcement. I just focused on the fun stuff that I was listening to get, get out there, clean my house. Let's see. <laughs> uh, I was watching my grandson uh, a couple days a week at the time. Um, so that helped a lot. It got me out of the house. You know, he'd go with me on my walks and stuff. He was, uh, when I started watching him, he was about three months old. So He's now almost three. <laughs> Much better walking age. Uh, yes. Now he can walk with me <laughs> instead <laughs> of pushing him around, which is nice. Yeah. But having stuff to do, um, if you're retiring and have plans, that's a good thing. You know, a lot of people retire from law enforcement and they go into something else. You know, a lot of cops maybe go into construction or... At, that I know of that, you know, they would like go and do um, something completely different. But having that, that plan is always good. Having that plan, just, don't just retire and go, I'm just going to sit around the house. <laughs> because when crazy. you've been a cop or a firefighter for 30 years, you can't just sit around. Um, so having a plan. Having a plan is always a good thing. Um, and for those people starting out, get a therapist within the first year. Yes. Or start, already. Start get one tomorrow. Down, get one tomorrow. <laughs> um, have that. Learn those tools that you're going to need to cope with what you're seeing. 
get a therapist that knows first responders, knows trauma. Because I went through three, <laughs> three therapists before I found uh, one that, that she fits me pretty good. Yeah. And that's really how it should be, right? It's like, just like uh, selecting anybody else you're going to work with it, very intimately. You you don't just pick the first one that comes. You pick exactly. one that you work with, right? So Yeah. But, le- you know, learn the tools for depression. Learn the tools for anxiety. I'm I'm lucky enough to have um, uh, Kaiser Medical Insurance down here mm-hmm. in California. And they have an all-around kind of thing. So they offer classes, too. Okay. So I was able to take you know, depression classes, anxiety classes, which not... At the time, uh, you know, back in 2015, got me out of the house, around other people that weren't law enforcement, and allowed me to kind of express what was going on, you know, without freaking people out because, you know, the general public doesn't understand what what we see and hear every day. Yeah. Um, But allowed me to get those tools and, and utilize them. And, you know, I've got like a, a binder up here with all my What's your my go-to handouts. tool? Yes. My go-to tool, I breathe. Nice. <laughs> you know, I just I just stand there and breathe and think. And uh, because once I go into a panic attack, it's hard to think. Mm. And so if I can catch it before, you know, and just start breathing, I, I can I can think my way through it. Um, you know, there was one. Um, when we first moved into our house here, um, so I was having all these these panic attacks, just new house and new bills, and I had accidentally paid the the county twenty one thousand dollars for my utility bill. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been a hot summer. <laughs> oh my gosh! And so I was panicking what to do because it's like. Um, uh, all my money is gone. <laughs> There's no money in my account anymore. What's going on? But luckily, they caught the the problem, and you know that mm. we were able to reverse it. But oh my gosh, yeah. So I started panicking, and 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 the first thing I did was I just calling my husband. Call your husband. Get him on the phone, and he was able to at least walk me down a bit, um, so that I could call the the utility company and get that straightened out. And what was nice was when I called the utility company, one of their operators was actually going to school to be a therapist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was talking me down too, because I had to explain to her, I'm going through a panic attack right now. <laughs> and so I'm going to be crying and I'm upset. It's not you, it's me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that was- A panic attack would be just pure anxiety. Pure panic- anxiety, hyperventilating. And you're so tense and and you can't focus. All you're seeing is is all the bad things just rolling around in your brain and you can't get them to stop and you can't focus and it it's 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 not fun. Hmm. We talked about your self care toolkit, uh, which is definitely something I want to talk about. Uh, you mentioned in retirement phase about having peer support help, or at least help for retirees. Where do you think we're missing a gap there on helping retirees through their journey of transition 
but also mental health, physical health? Well, you have two kinds of, well, maybe three, <laughs> three kinds of retirees. You have the retiree that's been there 30 years and everything's hunky-dory and we're transitioning out and we're going to go do something else or we're going to travel or, or whatever. You have that, that one. Then you have the medical um, retiree who's mm-hmm. forced out due to something physical, um, whether it's, you know, broken bones, back is always a, a big one or, or whatever. Um, and then you have the mental health ones, which we're finally starting to recognize the mental health, which we, you know, 10 years ago, it was, you just kind of wrote people off as soon as they, you know, they, they went crazy. We don't want to talk to them. We don't want to, those are the ones that we need to help the most because that transition from active duty into retirement, if they're not getting that consistent help that they need down the road, we're going to lose them to suicide. We're going to lose them to just, yeah, you know, I think suicide's the biggest one, but, you know, you're going to lose them to alcoholism, to drug addiction, to, to, to whatever. Yep. And that's something that I think we're failing as first responders, as agencies, is that continued care for those mental health retirements. What could you have used in your first couple of years of retirement that you didn't get that would have been really beneficial? Just uh, maybe a check-in once a month. Somebody that would check in, you know, just call and say, hey, how's it going? Are you going to therapy? Are you doing this? Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Um, how are you holding up? What You know, any anything mm-hmm. we can do to help would have been, you know, uh, they did manage to get me um, while I was out on Workman's Comp uh, to a retreat, mm-hmm. which was nice. Uh, trauma retreat that's good um and i think that needs to be done more you know and if if you have the intention of possibly helping that person and maybe returning them back to active duty you know whether it's who you know law enforcement fire dispatch even veterans you know Getting to a retreat and getting that that care is very beneficial and and the agencies need to look at that and you know that that five thousand dollars for that whole week is minimal minimal expense as to what that person's gonna do down the road if they're you know when they sue you <laughs> yep. yep and also it's uh I know, unfortunately, the dollar speaks louder than most things, but oh my gosh, yes, thirty years of service. There's got to be some protection for when they transition in retirement. Um, I think that'd be amazing. I don't know if that day will ever come, but uh, I think that would be priceless if there was better support for retirees after there's dedicating thirty years. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, and and you have these retirees that know a lot, why not bring them back as consultants every once in a while? Mm-hmm. You know, Hey, so-and-so used to do that. Hey, let's, you know, bring them in, use your retirees for good, mm-hmm. you know? And I was talking to uh, the people at first help 
I said, there's so many of us that are retired that want to help out that have no direction mm -hmm. as to what we can help with. You know, I'm contacting all these these groups to see what what can I do to help? And I finally found my little niche right now is going to podcasts and 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 getting my my story out there and saying, yeah. hey, we need to do better. Yeah, for sure. As we wrap up today, what's one nugget that really you'd love our listeners to, to learn from you about your story uh, or about some message that you want to make sure it gets through to every single listener today? We all are not leaving this job without something. There's some sort of little trauma that we all will have when we leave. And just being able to acknowledge that and take care of ourselves. Which lends not... back to having a therapist now versus exactly when, you, having... when, when crunch time, right? Yeah. You know, and... I, I, the time is over for sucking up buttercup it, and we need to really recognize that that suppressing everything down deep is is more harmful than it is to just talk about it and and get help for it. That's great. I 100% agree with that. Have you seen any changes in your stations that you were at? improving on any mental health or is it kind of still um, the same as it was? I went in for um coworkers retirement in oh when did we go in? In April? March. March. Um and I asked one of the the newer gals that was there who had been there when I was there. And I asked her just candidly, you know, is is it getting better? And she said, Yeah. Oh, it's good. getting much good. better. Yeah, so it's, it's not really you want to hear that whatever happened to you is kind of making change. But if you look on the bright side, whatever happened to myself, whatever happened to you is, is making change and might not have been comfortable to go through the time or now still even, but no, that's how we progress. <laughs> that's how we progress. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, I'm doing better, but there's still a lot to go. <laughs> Kudos for you for being brave enough to share your story. Because uh, I think that's the biggest way we're going to make change is to share our stories. Uh, the biggest exactly. way we're going to make change is to address it versus make it a, a stigma that we don't talk about. And I think mental health is just a part of our well-being. It doesn't, mental health has a bit of a, a stigma attached to it that when you say mental health, there's something wrong with your health. Why don't we start looking at mental health as being healthy so we have a healthy mind? Well, exactly. You know, you work out to for your physical health, so we need to do something else for our mental health to keep keep everything in balance. Exactly. Everyone should be concentrating on their mental health. Like first responders set aside, everyone should be working on their mental health. Yes, exactly. So, so what's one question I did not ask you that you wanted me to ask you? I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's one of my questions that I ask everyone. I don't know. There, there's I. I I just kind of let it go and see what, you know, I mean, there's all, all sorts of things that, you know, you did ask about my, my cooking skills, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Your butter chicken. My butter chicken. Well, hopefully <laughs> over, over time, I'm going to collect uh, a bunch of them and put together a podcast uh, cookbook. So that's kind of the game plan. So. Oh, see, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I just, I do a one heck of a, 
Indian butter chicken and my husband loves it. Mm, so I love it too. <laughs> I'll have to uh, hunt you down for the recipe because all you said was butter chicken. Oh yeah, it's it's uh well it's all up here. <laughs> nice. But my husband knows when I make it because he'll see the whipping cream in the uh, in the fridge and and the naan on the counter, so nice. <laughs> he knows yeah, what's coming for dinner. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure, Deborah, to chat with you and to learn a little bit about the inside world of being a dispatcher. Um, I honestly, I feel dispatchers don't get the recognition as much as other first responders. So uh, I just want to recognize that. But I know the ones that I counted on for two decades, I could not have survived without them on the other line, uh, supporting me, guiding me, having my back, um, making sure there's timers on and making sure that I was, I was safe out there on the field as well. So I just want to kudos to you as well as all the other dispatchers across the world that I believe uh, deserve a big round of applause. So thank you yes, for your hard you. work. Thanks for your hard work and uh, thanks for being brave for sharing your message tonight. Well, thank you for allowing me to do so. Awesome. It's great. Fantastic. All right, everyone. Evergreen. Until next time, stay well. Thank you for tuning in to Beneath the Helmet. We hope that this podcast has provided you with valuable insights into the world of firefighters' health and wellness. Remember, caring for your physical, mental, and spiritual well-being is crucial to achieving optimal performance. Join us next time on Beneath the Helmet for more inspiring conversations. Until then, stay well. <laughs>